This paid commercial may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy errors or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the 2018 Federal Executive Forum Series on Federal News Radio 1500 AM, proudly celebrating 13 years. Today's episode brings you secure mobile solutions in government. Here's your host, Luke McCormack. Good afternoon and welcome to this month's show. I'm Luke McCormack. During today's show, we will discuss mobility strategies in the federal government. With me on today's show are Frank Kaniski, Chief Technology Officer, U.S. Air Force. Dave Drigger, Assistant Program Manager, Mobility Sea Warrior Program, U.S. Navy. Mark Jaffin, Vice President of Strategy, Lookout. Dave Wright, Director of Regulatory Affairs and Network Standards, Ruckus Networks. And Randy Clark, Client Partner, DOD Verizon Enterprise Solutions. Well, mobility certainly is exploding these days. Uh, everything from, uh, you know, enabling the, uh, the warfighter uh, to, um, uh, you know, enabling us in our sort of consumer uh, you know, daily, uh, um, <clears throat> daily uh, doing, so to speak, and, and it's interesting to see how this particular technology, from a consumer perspective, is transforming itself over to a mission perspective very quickly. And so, um, interested to hear about that, Frank. How are we doing in the U.S. Air Force in regards to mobility? You've got a, uh, I'm sure, a incredible amount of use cases out there. Can you tell us about the progress with uh, mobility in the U.S. Air Force? Oh, yes, the, the first thing we decided to do when we set up our mobility council was develop a line of effort to figure out what connectivity we actually needed across all the bases. Right now we're working on an LTE initiative to bring LTE to all the bases very quickly within like two, three years. And we're trying to do that in a partnership with uh, the industry as well. So that's one of the things we're trying to do because we can't really do operations at the flight line unless we have the right connectivity. And that's one of the things we're trying to do right now is to move logistics operations, mobility maintenance operations out there right now. And we have an app to do that right now, and we're trying to progress with that. But that's one of the initiatives. The other initiative we have is we already established it was GuestNet. GuestNet's basically an interface to the Internet from any of every base. Basically used for uh, electronic flight books. That was the initial use case. However, there's other use cases that have come up now according to that. So as we move down the path, we're looking for enhanced connectivity everywhere on the base now. Not only you know in the uh, living quarters, but also at the flight lines. I would imagine that you would have uh, enhanced connectivity uh, uh, while in transit in the air as well, too, right? I yes. think it's a big part of what uh, what's well, happening with the. Uh, uh, one of that is, is the you know the enhanced network, which is the mesh network that we've always talked about as having between all the airplanes as well as the ground as well as the satellites. We're working on that as well. That's more, a little more complex because of the way you have to do beam steering and everything else associated with attaching to each of the aircraft. Sure, yes, I'm we're sure working on that. Securing that environment is tricky as well. We'll talk about that some more. Dave, how about over at the Navy? How are we doing in regards to uh, mobility, in regards to uh, uh, the fleet? Yeah, so the mobility in the Navy, I think, is, is certainly a growing effort. Uh, with regards to the Sea Warrior program, we've developed 24 mobile applications that are actually in production today. So any sailor can go to both the Apple and Google App Store, download those apps right to their personal device. They're also available for government devices as well. They're really centered around. Can you do that on a ship? 
if you download yeah. the application prior wow, to going afloat, so you can have that information and mm -hmm. functionality once you go afloat. Um, and those applications have been downloaded nearly around 400,000 times uh, at, at this point. Um, a lot of those applications uh, also provide sailors a lot of personal information um, about um, training and education uh, throughout their careers in the Navy. Um, and ultimately, we've kind of pushed forward to try to centralize the development of applications, development of mobile services within the Navy. And so we've developed a, a site called the Navy App Locker. And it really culminates all of the application development around the Navy into one central site. So sailors can go there and they can understand what are the trusted government developed applications that they can download to their devices and know that the information within those applications is official and trusted. Um, that app locker can be found on, on Navy.mil. Uh, it's easily accessible by anybody, and those applications are all free to download. Um, and we've also de developed a, a content management delivery system to where applications are really um, restricted on the amount of content we can deliver to them based off of uh, downloading that application to a sailor's device. We don't want to burden the sailor's device by an application that ultimately consumes their device. So. We now have a cloud-hosted uh, delivery system where we can actually deliver a lot of content to them but not burden their personal device. And so we're cognizant of the fact that we want sailors to use their personal devices, but we certainly don't want to make it a, a burden on them. Right. It'd be sort of a light touch. And I, would, I thought I read an article where it was uh, the Navy, I know the Air Force, actually has uh, airmen and sailors that are actually writing a lot of these mobile apps, which is just fascinating. Maybe we can talk about that later. Dave, how about at Ruckus? Uh, tell us about the progress of there in regards to enabling the uh, uh, the mission in regards to your technology from a mobile perspective. Sure, thanks, Luke. Um, just backing up to what Frank was talking about, we've been involved with a lot of smart base initiatives. So, um, you know, we've been deploying our indoor and outdoor Wi-Fi access points, um, you know, and uh, family housing, BQs, BOQs, um, you know, the base hospitals, um, MWR facilities, and and other on-base public facilities really to provide that sort of ubiquitous, pervasive Wi-Fi footprint. Sure. Um, I mean, do they even wire a base anymore in regards to housing, or is it all Wi-Fi, I wonder? A lot yeah. of the developers that yeah. we work with are just put in in wireless. I mean, that's, that is... The 5G you know, technology that's out there now, right? So yeah. many of the residential devices don't even have a, you know, an Ethernet port anymore. So mm -hmm. the only way you're going to get to it is with a wireless connection, really a Wi-Fi connection. Um, so doing a lot of that, that's an area we see a lot of uh, growth in. To the point about rolling out LTE solutions, um, Ruckus has a lot of initiatives around the, um, the Citizens Broadband Radio Service, or CBRS, uh, 3.5 gigahertz band. It's a new opportunity I hope to talk a little bit more about later in the program, but um, that's another area that we think really has a lot of applicability for uh, you know, the federal government and its agencies. Um, secure Wi-Fi is a big area of progress. Um, you know, everybody's looking for how do you provision, uh, you know, clients with secure credentials. How do you manage that? How do you do it over the life cycle of the client and their certificate? So we have a, a solution called CloudPath that um, is of you know great interest to in a number of agencies. Uh, we've been trialing that with some federal law enforcement, and um, it's also really good for like surge applications. So you know, you've got a bunch of people coming into a base on TAD or You've got a, uh, a you know an incident response center. You got to bring a lot of agents in. We can you know, enroll those people even before they're on scene with this cloud pass system, so that when they get there, they're connecting securely and seamlessly. Yeah, I mean the whole Wi-Fi capability is just amazing. How uh, much enablement that gives the uh, 
the, the warfighter or, you know, name your mission, but it certainly does open up the attack surface. So, um, well, uh, yep. Mark, uh, what are we doing uh, from a lookout perspective on sort of making sure that that attack surface gets locked down and that we don't have uh, exposure? I know you guys are right in the middle of that. That, that, is, that is where we find ourselves quite frequently, yes. Sure. It's, it's great to hear about all these initiatives where the proliferation of mobile devices is really upon us now, and so we we tend to look at this as an opportunity where um, as, as you look at mobile devices and the utilization of mobile devices, you can look at that in a way that allows you to be productive, be connected, but do so securely. And our approach is really to look at four, uh, four risk angles that tend to present themselves on mobile devices. So we, we analyze and look at the applications that are on mobile devices. We also look at the devices themselves. Uh, and the behavioral patterns and the operating systems of the devices, whether there are any kind of threats associated with those. We tend to look at the connectivity aspect as well, complementary to things that Ruckus does. Uh, we look at it from a device side to, to ensure that there is uh, security in the connectivity of a mobile device. And we also look at the connectivity from a web or content standpoint. In other words, ensuring that uh, URLs that are being accessed from a mobile device are secure URLs. This is a, an emerging vector, an emerging threat vector that we're finding. It's associated with mobile phishing, where folks are, are sort of lured into thinking it's a secure website, but sure. yet it tends to redirect them into a different way. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're getting much more sophisticated now, and it's by the time you realize that you're in sort of one of these honeypots, you know, you've yes. been had, so to speak. So. Um, great, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what you guys are doing with some of your uh, AI analysis and mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, Verizon, Randy, how are we doing in regards to progress there? Mobile technology is a big part of what Verizon is doing today, enabling uh, the entire spectrum of uh, agencies across the, um, uh, across the federal government. Well, to a, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, from my perspective, um, I've seen a, a great deal of progress within the federal government in mobility initiatives. Um, I think the paradigm shift is starting to happen. When we look at our IT infrastructure, we have to be mobile first uh, because the workforce of the future is mobile. Um, so I think it's going to change the way we architect uh, IT systems, um, leading with mobile instead of mobile being an afterthought. Um, Verizon takes that to heart. Um, you know, we, we believe that we're on the cusp of the fourth uh, industrial revolution that's going to be enabled by 5G. And uh, the low latency that 5G brings, the amount of bandwidth that 5G brings. Um, and, you know, mobility and IoT are the norm today in our society. And they're becoming a norm uh, within federal agencies. Frank talked about the electronic flight bag. Uh, maintenance and logistics applications, the flight line uh, becoming uh, uh, enabled by uh, LTE and then in the future 5G. But uh, the value is really having the ability to uh, create action on data on a timely manner. And that's about speed and it's about security. Um, you know, AI is the enabler here. So when you think, of, uh, you think of the progress that's being made, Verizon uh, has invested an awful, awful lot of money in its fiber infrastructure. You have Fios, you have our acquisition of uh, Exo, you have uh, the Corning deal. Um, we're laying down fiber uh, at breakneck speed because there is no wireless without wireline, and fiber is part of the solution there. Um, we're also investing a great deal of time, money, and effort into 5G, and we can talk about CBRS and the value of leveraging unlicensed spectrum through uh, LAA. 
uh, with licensed spectrum to create the size of the pipe. Um, but you know, the progress really is uh, mirroring uh, the cloud uh, with uh, edge networking in the government. We refer to it as distributed uh, networking. Um, so putting the intelligence at the edge of the network. Um, they do that an awful lot in industrial IoT. So sensors are actually uh, analyzing the data real time at the edge without the necess uh, necessary backhaul requirement. That's also important to the government because they need isolation for their degradation of comms uh, um, port, uh, initiatives. Um, but high capacity spe spectrum is the key to edge networking. Um, and uh, we've already kind of touched on CBRS. But then, you know, uh, how do you secure that? And I think one of the, uh, one of the most interesting areas today is you look at connected devices, they're going to be connected through a series of different wireless protocols. It could be Bluetooth, it could be near field, it could be Wi-Fi, it could be commercial LTE, it could be private LTE, it could be 5G. And what you're trying to do is enable an IP address in a person with an application uh, uh, real time. And you have to do that globally. And um, we're doing an awful lot of work in that area, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, software-defined perimeter and what that enables from a cybersecurity architecture uh, moving forward. I do want to point out, though, um, you know, Verizon has done a lot of firsts this year. This has been an exciting year for us. You know, we we got a gigabyte over LTE. Um, you know, we did our carrier integration work. We did MIMO and QAM. Um, you know, we uh, launched our CAT M1 sure. network nationally. Sure. And uh, um, uh, interested to hear about the. We tried to find out if uh, we could get the the 5G rollout schedule on a, a last show with uh, one of your colleagues. So we'll uh, we'll ask you again on a uh, on a, on, a, on another round. Uh, Dave, let's talk about a specific program at Ruckus and maybe something that you're doing in regards to uh, enabling uh, you know one of these agencies in, in respect to your technology. Uh, and, and, and where you guys are with that. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks Luke. Um, in terms of like a specific program that I would focus on as a success story, I'm gonna bring it right back to CBRS because um, you know, if you look at that framework, it's, uh, it's really novel from a federal perspective in that um, you know, some of the incumbents in the, in the band that's being opened up for new commercial services are federal users, right, they're DOD. <laughs> there are DOD users there. There's some radar systems. Um, so they're, they're the incumbents, but they're also potentially some of the new users uh, of these commercial services that are being introduced to the band. Um, and we think that's just very compelling. It, it enables some of the, um, you know, the both public and private LTE deployments that Randy was just talking about. And you know, in a nutshell, it really allows LTE to be deployed by an agency or by a branch, um, you know, much the same way that Wi-Fi is deployed today. So there's this GAA or this um, opportunistic tier within the CBRS framework where you don't have to have a license uh, to operate. You can, you know, access 20, 40 megahertz or more potentially of spectrum. Um, and spectrum access is always the key as, as Randy was just talking about. So the ability for a, you know, a service to stand this up for base connectivity, like Frank was talking about, have LTE coverage at your airstrip, um, you know, use it for in-building coverage. A lot of, in, uh, of buildings do not have good cellular coverage from the outdoor macro sure. networks. Yeah. So you know, uh, Ed Chan from Verizon has talked about the opportunities they see uh, with CBRS to provide better in-building solutions. 
So we think that's a, a huge opportunity, um, you know, from a from an agency perspective. It also gives the agency the control over the data flow. You know, it goes through the, uh, an, an EPC or a core that they are controlling potentially if it's a private deployment. Um, and has the, all the security benefits. You know, that, that, you know that just opening up that uh, that auction and opening up that spectrum has just opened up a world of opportunities. I was always amazed at some of these agencies where, you know, the majority of the, the workforce is a mobile workforce, but the port on the applications, a lot of times the first port and the second port is still to the desktop. Frank, mm. tell us about a program that you're working on uh, that uh, you can give us some specifics on in regards to enabling the workforce from a mobile perspective. Yeah, well, let's talk about working with with legacy applications since we have a lots of them sure so then you know we want to go mobile first but since these applications have been around for a long time that's not going to be easy so one of the applications we're running right now is a mobile app that basically attaches itself to three legacy applications mm -hmm. and it's very messy when you do this because there are three different types of applications and the gateways into those applications are more difficult and so one of the apps is basically a logistics app it's a pilot because we're trying to actually do this right and set up a framework where we will Use all, we'll use the same framework for all the other applications, especially when you're accessing legacy. And so the issue is, how am I going to grab three legacy data from three different databases, from different systems, and actually write back to them with updates? So in logistics, you actually do this, because you have to order parts, take parts, and so you have to put requests in and grab things back and forth. And so this is causing some issues, because of course, we have to go through all sorts of uh, ATOs, because it's uh, three, three different groups are actually running the data, so it's three different data sources, so they all have to agree to it. They all have to agree to the two-way interface and everything else, and so we're playing through that right now as to what it takes to actually do this. And that'll be the model that we're going to use for all the other legacy attachments that we have to do for mobility now because it, it seems to be the way we have to go. We have too many legacy applications sitting there that we cannot convert immediately. I mean, we want to go mobile first, but really it's really difficult because you have this infrastructure base of us, two, 3,000 applications sitting there that you have to maintain. And the question becomes, how quickly can you actually take those into a mobile environment? And we're finding that it takes a while, obviously, because you have to do the analysis and everything else and the connectivity. And all that refactoring and, and figuring out how to pull all that data together, fuse it onto the desktop into a, a sort of a mobile device and do it securely, right? And that's not an easy thing that's to do. Easy. And we're trying not to refactor the, the legacy as little as possible. Right. Because right. it takes forever to, <laughs> to go through that program and change it. Are you using any automated tools to do that, or is it just a, sort yeah, of a... Some uh, automated interfaces that mm -hmm. we're working with right now because of the different legacies that we have to interface with. You can't actually go into the database, per se, because they're all front-ended by you know, legacy software. So you have to go through the software, and you can pull the data in and out and look like you're a normal user to that, to that legacy application. And so it's, it's a challenge to do this, but again, it's the way that we have to go because of all the applications that we have right now. Sure, you've got to maintain the, uh, 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 the, the current and the legacy and then sort of move yourself into the, uh, uh, this modern mobile environment. Well, we'll talk about the rest of the specific programs uh, when we come back, but we have to uh, take a short break. You're listening to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Federal networking solutions just got better with Ruckus Networks. We understand federal networks demand agility, reliability, and security to protect and serve our citizens. With over 20 years' experience supporting mission-critical requirements with trusted switching technology, Ruckus Networks adds outstanding wireless offerings. Ruckus Networks, an Aris company, delivers superior network performance in any environment. 
Visit ruckusnetworks.com to learn how our innovations help you achieve your mission. According to Lookout Research, the rate at which people are falling for phishing attacks on mobile has increased 85% year over year since 2011. Phishing is more problematic on the mobile device than on traditional endpoints, and it's successful. Lookout offers the next level of defense required to give your agency visibility and protect against mobile threats to government data. Learn more about how Lookout Mobile Endpoint Security protects your organization's sensitive data. Visit lookout.com federal. When disasters strike, first responders and government agencies rely on Verizon, the nation's best and most reliable 4G LTE network. With 20 years of public safety experience, Verizon prepares for national and local crises across their entire network, building redundancy, staging equipment, and training alongside agencies to help those who protect our nation answer the call with secure, interoperable, and priority communications. Experience and commitment matter. Learn more at verizonenterprise.com slash public safety. Welcome back to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. With me on today's show are Frank Kaniski, Chief Technology Officer, U.S. Air Force, Dave Dreiger, Assistant Program Manager, Mobility Sea Warrior Program, U.S. Navy, Mark Jaffin, Vice President, Strategy Lookout, Dave Wright, Director of Regulatory Affairs and Network Standards, Ruckus Networks, and Randy Clark, Client Partner, DOD, Verizon Enterprise Systems. We're talking about mobility, and we were talking about specific programs. Let me go over to you, Mark, and talk about a specific program, maybe in a specific agency, that you want to highlight uh, um, in regards to rolling out a uh, mobility uh, capability and certainly doing it securely. So so we've... uh We've been able to do this across uh, civilian, defense, and intelligence agencies, and, and really the approach we've taken is to enable the, the seamless movement of, um, of agents, of field agents, inside and outside of government, uh, secure government networks, back outside to, to Wi-Fi networks, to wireless networks, and really the goal there and, and the, the use case that we've been able to, to deploy is giving these, these uh, moving moving mobile assets, really the protection they need to continue to be productive, to continue to be effective in, in the mission that they have. Um, our view is that as we, as we look at the, the post-perimeter world, so the world in which you are seamlessly transitioning in and out of networks, the, the establishment of identity, the establishment of the user is a critical element, but equally so, it's the establishment of the threat profile of the device of the endpoint device, and that's really been the, er- the area that we've focused on and the contribution that we've brought to some of these uh, use cases in the agencies. Right, and I, I think that's why I read where you're using a little bit of AI on that to, to do some of that analysis and look at pattern recognition, these sort of things, and exactly. see where you have some anomalies there, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's one of the big leverage points that we have is we have a, a massive data set in the cloud. We call it our intelligent security cloud, mm-hmm. and that really gives us the ability to, to take uh, comparative looks at things that we see on devices against things that we've seen in the past, mm-hmm. use machine learning against our data set, and really be able to, to leverage artificial intelligence and machine learning to provide the security yeah, on devices. There's anomalies there. Dave, how about at the Navy? Can you give us uh, a specific program? I'm sure you have many there of where you're using mobile to enable your uh, 
your workforce there. Yeah, definitely. A great one uh, would be our, our Cleric mobile application, uh, which is the, the Navy Center for Language, Regional Expertise, and, and Culture. Uh, for a lot of us who've worn the uniform, uh, we know we work across the globe, and, and one of the challenges there is, is educating sailors on the, the theater that they're going to be operating in. And the Cleric mobile application that's in production and in sailors' hands today provides them a whole host of different country packages, which essentially provides a lot of information and sort of do's and don'ts of the, the area of operation that they're going into. Uh, a lot of times when a, a sailor, let's say, gets deployed over to Okinawa, Japan, there's a, there's a period of time where they need to learn uh, about the culture, some of the language, and, and again, the do's and the don'ts of that, that uh, uh, area of operation. And this application uh, will allow them to quickly download the Japan country package, learn about that country before they ever step foot in that, in, in that, in that area. And they can do so um, with at, at this point right now, we're including almost 70 different country packages in there. So no matter where that sailor goes, they can quickly get spun up on that area of operation before they ever step foot in, the, in that, so that area. So is that their own device or is that a Navy-issued device? Because I heard you talk right a little bit of BYOD there. Sure, it, it can be downloaded right, right from their yeah. own device. Mm -hmm. um, or if they have a government device, it could be used on that as well. But we understand that most sailors have at least one mobile device on them, whether sure. that be a phone Absolutely. or a tablet. And, and we wanted to make sure that uh, both through iOS devices and Android devices, they can download it uh, and use it as they see fit. Uh, and ultimately, we work directly with our cybersecurity team, our legal team, our public affairs team to make sure that the, the content and, and functionality we put on that application is, is, is blessed off for public release. So we can put those applications right into the, uh, the commercial app stores and make it easily available to the sailors. Because ultimately, we want to provide the same kind of capability, the same experience they have downloading any app that they would uh, in their personal life. And so we don't want to have them jump through different hoops to have to download and use an application. Right, we want right. to make it easy and, and seamless for them. Fantastic. You know, the sailors getting, uh, you know, um, uh, the ability to, to um, indoctrinate themselves into a local culture uh, via their mobile device. I think that's great. All right, Randy, uh, what's going on with 5G at Verizon? <laughs> Um, well, I'm not going to release the list. Okay. So, so nice try. Um, I'll we let. Try. I'll we, let we others. wanted it to be a first here. Uh, right. I'll let others yeah. do that. Um, you know what I'll say about 5G is um, there's fundamentally two different flavors, right? There's mobile 5G and fixed 5G. Uh, what you're going to see Verizon do initially is launch with fixed 5G. Um, it is, uh, from a commercial perspective. Uh, um, an ability to provide a great deal of bandwidth to a building without wires. That's beneficial to the federal government on base, post, and station because you don't, it's less intrusive to the prem, right? You're not trenching across flight line right. in order to deliver bandwidth. You look at logistics depots um, and you have to pr provide voice over IP telephony to every single building. Um, but you got a trench. Those fiber costs Historical are enormous. Buildings, you know, right. Historical of, uh, buildings. Historical here. Yeah. You know, you go to Okinawa. Mm -hmm. Okinawa is coral. Hawaii, oh. Kebe, coral. Yeah. It's five times more expensive to trench in coral than it is dirt. So uh, mobile 5G is going to enable uh, the extension of a great deal of bandwidth into office buildings or condominiums or barracks uh, um, very quickly, and it'll be very agile. Um, so that's very attractive, right? And um, one of the interesting things about 5G, because of its bandwidth and its low latency, um, there's research being done on trilateration, which is the ability to create a geofence 
Um, um, and we assume that within a sixteenth of an inch, a device within a, 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 a classified processing area or a SCIF, mm -hmm. right, can have data on it while it's in the geofence and yeah. within a sixteenth of an inch of tolerance, that information is wiped. So 5G um, has a lot of promise. A uh, lot of a lot of promise. And, um, mobile 5G. That's interesting. Absolutely. Uh, we like to talk about lessons learned, and as uh, you all, as a community, are really sort of blazing the path here, and we'd like to share that with our community. So, Dave, let me ask you at Ruckus. Uh, give us some lessons learned about what you're seeing across the community as you roll out this type of capability and the things people need to be thinking about. Sure. So. Um, we're learning a lot of lessons through this uh, this real uh, you know sort of inaugural attempt for um, industry and the federal government DoD specifically to figure out how to share spectrum. Um, you know, for the first time, as, as Randy and I have highlighted, you know, a lot of these next generation wireless services. They, they have pretty broad uh, bandwidth requirements, and so there's, um, uh, it sometimes seemed like a never-ending appetite for additional spectrum for commercial services. And, uh, you know, when, when industry goes to the commission uh, and asks for additional spectrum, it often ends up coming back to the federal side via NTIA, and we get congressional mandates or um, presidential mandates to free up spectrum. Um, and, you know, Assistant Secretary Rettle at NTIA and, and the DOD uh, CIO's office have been very clear that, you know, clearing and re repurposing spectrum, especially below 10 gigahertz, is getting very challenging. And so the preferred method going forward will be uh, sharing frameworks like CBRS. Right. Um, but that really requires, you know, federal and commercial to work very closely together. Um, and to do that early, to um, you know, get the information uh, to the extent that we can from the um, uh, the federal incumbents about you know their operations, their security considerations, operational security considerations, get all of that um, on the table, and then really work together to create a framework that um, preserves the uh, the federal incumbent uh, capabilities while opening up some of these lightly used bands for new commercial services. Right. I mean, there's only so much spectrum there, there right? And more of to, it. That's yeah. exactly um, right. I mean, it's a precious commodity. And I was just going to say, Assistant Secretary Rettles talked about looking at 3450 to 3550 as another potential band where we could do some sharing. So we're looking to apply a lot of these lessons learned from CBRS uh, into that process. Fantastic. Frank, how about at the Air Force? I'm sure you've got a lot of lessons learned about uh, things that uh, you're encountering and have overcome in regards to your mobile strategy. Yeah, the, the first is understand what the user actually needs. <laughs> because that always seems to be that the developers like to do things which are really cool. Right. And the, the users are like, I don't understand what you're actually building for me. Mm -hmm. So especially with, with the logistics one, what happened was, the legacy systems were so complex that it was difficult to actually learn how to field manage legacy systems. So obviously you didn't want to replicate those into a mobile device because it would be impossible. So the question was, how do you work with the, the actual user environment to see how they're actually doing this, especially in the environment where they're at? Because you can't assume that it's perfect conditions all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the issues that we always have is that you know, they're on the flight line. This is not exactly you know, sitting at their desk in an air-conditioned room. The other thing that we actually learned is that we try to standardize the development process as well as the infrastructure that you're going to have to use. Because when we first started out, we had multiple ways of doing this. <laughs> In fact, too many, too, many, too many ways of doing this in actual, actuality. Sure. And so we're trying right now to standardize what is the standard way, the best way, the optimal way to efficiently provide the service to the, to the airmen out there, mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, well, just, just code it and you know they'll come. Because we find that 
every time they field an app like that, yes, people come, but it's not enterprise-wide and it can't be fielded that way either. Can't so scale it, right? Can't scale it out. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, yeah, it sounds like uh, centers of excellence is in order, right? Yeah, we're trying uh, to work with one right now to actually do this as a software factory. Sure, exactly. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, Mark, how about at Lookout? I, I know you are involved in a lot of different agencies. I'm sure there's a lot of lessons learned out there uh, mm -hmm. that you could share with our audience as they embark on this endeavor. Yeah, we, uh, the mobile security space continues to be an emerging one, and so we are finding ourselves in a, in a fortunate situation where we can, we can broaden the awareness, broaden the education about what mobile security is and what the need for mobile security is. Mobile security is really not solved with the traditional mobile device management uh, solutions. That's a, that's a platform, it's a software platform that's effective in managing devices, but it really doesn't apply security. It's, it's, uh, it, it leaves a gap when it comes to the security that a mobile device would then benefit from. Mm -hmm. and, and securing mobile devices is also very different than securing traditional laptops or desktops as well. It's a very different approach when you, when you secure from an app-centric view versus the traditional legacy security approach. So, so we've certainly found that, that uh, creating that awareness around MDMs not being sufficient for security, we found that securing in a way different than the traditional uh, PC or laptop security approach, that these are all um, effective and, and um, necessary means and measures. The one gap we've identified or learned is that the, you know, there's no uniform strategy across mobile at the federal level. There, NIST has had a mobile strategy for years, mm -hmm. but there's no, uh, not, not at a senior enough level, a government strategy that really defines mobile as, as a spectrum, or sorry, as, as a, a vector that really has both exposure and needs to be secured. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about IoT, and, and sometimes that jumps right over the mobile device, and, and we're not considering that mobile device, in effect, as an endpoint, is, is perhaps even another form of IoT, right. um, but, but needs to be secured very differently. Right, and it's, you know, it's, it's all about uh, multi-layer security, right? Just like you had in your sort of data, cent data center-centric environment, sort of guards, gates, locks, yes. network perimeter, the data itself. You know, you're locking down a the device with an MDM project or, uh, uh, you know, a system of, <clears throat> of sorts, some sort of a product, and then you're, you're actually locking down the data. Um, Dave, how about at the Navy? Can you tell us, uh, give us an example there of where uh, you've been able to uh, glean some lessons learned that you'd like to... Um, uh, yeah, certainly. I, th I think I'll certainly uh, echo Frank's first point is, sure. is listen to your customers, right? Um, our, uh, our young sailors, right, uh, one of the things I try to do uh, is go around and meet with the young sailors and understand their needs. Um, right, and understand what they're looking for, for from, from their Navy, right, to help them throughout their careers. Um, and, and ultimately understanding those requirements will help drive us uh, to the best solutions. Um, but in, in, in saying that, also with our, our young sailors, right, because they're what I call digital natives, sure. we also have a, a large majority of our workforce that aren't digital natives, right? So we also have to make sure that we, we test and we, we look at our entire user group that's going to be using the our mobile applications and services. So, but ultimately, it's it's a really a, a focus on on the customer uh, in and of itself. Um, the second, which um, I think we, we we've kind of addressed, is a, a more tailored approach to mobile um, services and, and security and the strategy in which we uh, we which we approach mobility in the DoD. I completely concur. I think we we kind of lack a centralized uh, strategy, and ultimately. 
in the DoD, we've got our big DoD 5000, which you know ultimately dictates sort of how we do IT systems development, mobile applications and services. It's very different, and it requires a much more tailored approach. Uh, and so one thing that we're certainly doing in the Navy is taking sort of the overall guidance in the DoD and tailoring it down to what's truly appropriate for mobile because one of the best aspects of mobile is the speed to capability. We can develop applications and services quickly and get those out to the fleet, uh, whereas some bigger capabilities would take years to ultimately develop and deliver that capability. We want to try to harness that core capability of mobility and get that out to the sailor's hands quickly. Yeah. And it takes that a tailored approach uh, to do so. And I think you know part of this challenge, especially in this space, is sort of this tectonic shift in this technology, right? And it's moving so rapidly. It's very difficult for NIST or anyone else to sort of, you know, get their hands on this framework and lock it down because this target moves so quickly. Randy, give us one example of a lessons learned. Sort of what's a top, you know, at Verizon uh, as you guys look across this entire universe. What's sort of the number one issue that uh, you see out there that you'd like to share with the community as they're embarking on this movement? Well, the movement is about network virtualization and cloud-based applications fundamentally, and um, I, I think when you think about that, um, you know, interoperability, open APIs, you know, are critical uh, in order to create that uniformity uh, across services, right, and across stakeholders. Um, that's their commercial vendors, their contractors, the civilians they um, they serve. You know, interoperability and open architecture is what fundamentally is going to future-proof the government's investment in in IT. Um, I think a lot of great work has been done over the last couple of years leveraging other transactional authorities, which is giving the government uh, immediate access to innovation. Um, and it's a rapid acquisition style um, used in the first Gulf War, and you know, DIS is now using it. There's several consortiums, the C5, SOCI, the National sure. Spectrum Consortium. Uh, DIUX is uh, uh, an OTA process. DIUX at large, very aggressive using OTAs. Right, mm -hmm. and, and I think that's important because it's, uh, it's enriching uh, the acquisition uh, community with uh, ideas and small businesses that are driving uh, emerging and disruptive technologies. Um, and that's very good to see, um, getting away from this, the traditional uh, large programs of record that don't have spiral development in them and create technologies that are outdated uh, by the time the operator gets their hands on them, right? Sure. So, Any lessons learned using the OTA that you'd, you'd want to point out that, uh, you know, would as different civilian agencies start to use this? Well, I, I think they're attractive to both sides of the house, right? I, I, I pretty much outlined why it's beneficial to the federal government, you know, from a contractor perspective. Um, it's a way to get fresh and new ideas and new architectures uh, into the mainstream, uh, you know, uh, knowledge bank. But it also uh, allows for operational evaluations um, and not science experiments. So we're being measured and tested uh, against uh, requirements known and unknown. Um, and I think that's an interactive environment uh, to operate in. Sure. We, we, As this technology moves very rapidly, it would seem like a vehicle like OTAs, for example, would be a, a good mechanism as you prototype these things. And I know in uh, DOD, you now have the authorization, you know, uh, done right and done properly, of course, to work that all the way through to uh, a full implementation, and, uh, which I think is fantastic. A uh, good marriage of the different type of acquisition mechanism 
uh, against uh, a technology that's moving very rapidly. Yeah, and if I could just add, you know, the, the government needs to draft behind commercial innovation. They need to get six months behind it, right? In in mobility, there's over sixty billion dollars of R and D spent by the big OEMs, and it takes years for the government to digest that. And sure, sure. It, they need to get in the draft. I'm not saying adopt 100% cots. Right. There are going to be Let's situations. Closely. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, well uh, interesting topic, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that when we come back. But we need to take a short break. You're listening to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and com. Federal networking solutions just got better with Ruckus Networks. We understand federal networks demand agility, reliability, and security to protect and serve our citizens. With over 20 years' experience supporting mission-critical requirements with trusted switching technology, Ruckus Networks adds outstanding wireless offerings. Ruckus Networks, an Aris company, delivers superior network performance in any environment. Visit ruckusnetworks.com to learn how our innovations help you achieve your mission. According to Lookout Research, the rate at which people are falling for phishing attacks on mobile has increased 85% year-over-year since 2011. Phishing is more problematic on the mobile device than on traditional endpoints, and it's successful. Lookout offers the next level of defense required to give your agency visibility and protect against mobile threats to government data. Learn more about how Lookout Mobile Endpoint Security protects your organization's sensitive data. Visit lookout.com slash federal. When disasters strike, first responders and government agencies rely on Verizon, the nation's best and most reliable 4G LTE network. With 20 years of public safety experience, Verizon prepares for national and local crises across their entire network, building redundancy, staging equipment, and training alongside agencies to help those who protect our nation answer the call with secure, interoperable, and priority communications. Experience and commitment matter. Learn more at verizonenterprise.com slash public safety. Welcome back to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. With me on today's show are Frank Konzitsi, Chief Technology Officer, U.S. Air Force, Dave Jurger, Assistant Program Manager, Mobility Sea Warrior Program, U.S. Navy, Mark Jaffin, Vice President, Strategy Lookout, Dave Wright, Director of Regulatory Affairs and Network Standards, Ruckus Networks, and Randy Clark, Client Partner, DOD, Verizon Enterprise Solutions. All right, we're talking about mobility, and I wanted to open it up to challenges, and I'm sure there's a lot of those, so we're going to ask you, Dave, at the Navy. Tell us about some of the challenges that you're having out there and maybe some of the ways that you're trying to overcome those or things that you're anticipating. Certainly one of the big challenges is, is bringing the sailor the same experience uh, for Navy information and functionality that they are accustomed to in their personal lives with mobility. Um, right, uh, a simple Perfect example point. of this is, is going into their banking app, right? Being able to log in securely and being able to see some personalized uh, sensitive information. Um, we're trying to bring that same capability to them you know, within the Navy, uh, bringing them their, their personal information about their training, their education, uh, to be able to manage their career from a self-service mobile application. There's quite a few challenges to do doing that. Uh, one is just the way we authenticate uh, sailors in the Navy. That's through the common access card, right? You got to put a physical card mm-hmm. in a in a in a device. Well, that doesn't work well with with mobile applications. So and, and devices. 
So one of the things that we're tackling right now is to do just standard multi-factor authentication and get away from the common access card. And so we can allow a sailor to authenticate uh, securely into a mobile application to get to their own personal sure. information. And yeah. So that's a big challenge that we see right now is providing them something that they're used to doing on a desktop in an office type environment. But we understand that most sailors don't work in an office. They work on a, you know, on a ship or in, in the field. And we want to be able to provide that same capability that they would have in an office right to their personal device. Right, that user experience from a consumer perspective and also from, you know, just my desktop at work, you know, if I'm working on a case management system and I want to do that remotely, I want to have the same experience. Uh, Dave, how about at Ruckus Networks? Uh, what's the challenges out there that you see that uh, you're looking to overcome? Sure. Um, so, again, kind of certainly back to, <coughs> pardon me, to one thing Randy brought up about um, you know, federal government drafting off of what's going on in commercial development. I, I certainly agree with that point. I think another aspect of that is just pacing, right? It, it's, um, you know, and I think um, Dave also alluded to this with, you know, mobility applications within the Navy trying to, you know, roll those more quickly. And as industry and the government work more closely together on, like, spectrum-related issues, bringing new bands into service, sharing those bands, um, you know, as, as Colonel Williams from the CIO, uh, D, uh, CIO's office, the DOD, said last month at a um, uh, NTI Spectrum Symposium, you know, we just got to learn a lot more about each other, that is industry and the federal side. Um, and, you know, industry's always wanting to, to get things to market quickly. Um, you know, the, the pace of DOD is not always uh, quite the same. So we're at a point now where, you know, we're trying to get the CBRS band commercialized, and um, there's some DOD approvals that are going to be needed on that, obviously because of the incumbencies there. And so I think finding that right balance between... Sounds like that might have been a request out there. Huh? <laughs> Could have been. Um, but, you know, just finding that right balance and sure. the right kind of collaborative pacing, I think. Right, important to be able to manage that spectrum, right, like we talked about, and certainly the identification piece of that and making sure that's bullet proof but seamless right Frank how about at uh, the Air Force uh, tell us about some of the challenges that you all are having there and, and sort of how you're overcoming that well I think as Dave's mentioned one of, the, one of the challenges is security especially when you get to the flight line and everything else is and how you do authorization and authentication for the people I mean we're looking at continuous authentication capabilities right now so that you don't have to put in a cat card you don't have to put in a pin it knows the device knows that it is you based upon your gestures based upon your actions based upon everything else so when you get to the flight line you're out there you don't have to do anything you the device knows that it is you and authenticates you back to the system as well as giving you access control to those things because a lot of the problems we have is that the legacies and everything else gives you immediate access to almost everything and so the, the idea is to look at your attributes and go back another layer besides authentication. I know who you are, but I have to make sure that you have the correct access because, again, we're, we're doing lots of applications out there. And if you get to the point where you have critical applications, where logistics is a critical one, as well as personnel, as well as using, going to the point of using Fitbits to determine how physically fit you are, <laughs> so you don't have to do your physicals, right. you're getting to the point where, you know, it does apply to exactly who you are all the time. Right. And where you are, which we saw those articles in the, yes. uh, in the news about that. <laughs> Mark, how about at Lookout? Uh, tell us about some of the challenges that uh, you're seeing out there and uh, the, some of the ways that you guys are overcoming it. We're addressing those. As, as I mentioned earlier, I think a, a national 
standard or strategy around mobile security is, is certainly one of the big challenges that we see. There's no uniformity around that. There's no consistency in a, in a national strategy across the government. So that's one of the big challenges that we've identified. Beyond that, I, I would say, uh, in, and I'll, I'll pick up on, on what Dave was saying as well, you know, to the extent that devices are now being used in the multi-factor authentication process, mm -hmm. mobile devices are being used as a form of, of authentication. The, the risk profile, the threat profile, or the health of that device becomes uh, extremely important to establish before that authentication is even allowed. Because if you are authenticating from a compromised device, you're effectively defeating the authentication process that, that's, in, that's in place to, to ensure the identity of the user. So that's one of the other um, areas that we've focused on trying to complement some of these transitions to more mobility, more mobile usage, and, and really enabling that to be done in a secure way. Uh, simply banning a device, simply banning mobile usage is not going to work. As, as you said earlier, um, the users are actually expecting to, to use a mobile device, whether it's in the, in the you know, work setting or the personal setting, in a very, very consistent way. And, and the, the, the challenges uh, that, that we've identified in some of the policies where simply locking down a device to an extreme extent, or banning a mobile device uh, simply doesn't doesn't reflect yeah, where the, the place is going. Prohibit the use of it in some cases where you you know you're trying to you know do all the right things there, and I think that's where you know this multi-layer security, including you know things like derived credentials and those sort of things, and baking that in and making that a a great experience is going to be super important. Well, we like to wrap it up here with a, sort of a, a, a vision of the future. We're going to start with you, Randy, at Verizon. So paint a picture. You know what is it? look like out there? What do you see over the next couple of years uh, that the, the audience, the community can be expecting from Verizon? Well, the value of mobility is the value of the time sensitivity of the data, right? So zero decision making time is what's going to be enabled by the networks of the future. That's what 5G is bringing not only to the human being, but to automated and semi-autonomous, you know, robotic devices or telemetry, right? or just collecting uh, sensor data uh, real time and being able to analyze it locally. So from a DOD base post and station perspective, I applaud the Air Force for their initiatives with the LTE infrastructure program. They have to leverage uh, the willingness of commercial cellular to invest um, on uh, federal lands. They have to provide fair and equal access. It's not an easy process especially when you talk about 5G and the densification of networks, because now we're talking about small cells versus cell sites, right? So 20 cell sites versus one cell site. So there's, a, there's issues there and challenges, but I think that the Air Force initiative is working through them. I think they're on the tip of the spear there. Um, hope to see sister services, uh, you know, use, uh, use their process, right, to enable all of DOD. Um, the network of the future is enablement of IP addresses globally over disparate networks, you know, privately owned, publicly owned, uh, regardless of transport, Bluetooth, cellular, satellite, right, uh, light, uh, microwave. Um, so this homogenous network architecture uh, is what's going to enable the fourth uh, you know, industrial revolution. And the security architecture, like I mentioned earlier, SDP, is one of those technologies that will enable uh, that. SDP is a, it's a reverse handshake to the network, right? It partitions the network. It, it splices the session. It provides an IP uh, address access to an application dynamically. 
Um, so it gives total control um, over that session. And there's no forensic evidence uh, when the session is expired. And that can be minutes, days, weeks, or years. So fully mesh network. Uh, um, Mark, uh, what does the uh, future look like over the next couple of years? So we've got a fully mesh network. We have to secure it. Uh, what do you see from Lookout's perspective? Yeah, we do. As we heard today, I mean, we're going to have the bandwidth to do more from the mobile devices as these mesh networks get built out. We're going to have more... 5G, mobile, and hardwired. It it's all, all comes mm -hmm. together. Um, more applications being developed, uh, more utilization on mobile devices, a shift from legacy um, applications to mobile applications. All of that is just going to drive us to be doing more work on the mobile devices and in turn having more sensitive or important information on mobile devices. And if you look at some of the initiatives that are being discussed, DISA is talking about uh, replacing identity access cards on and, and replacing those with mobile devices. There's talk about um, creating or, or using mobile devices for driver's license, mobile driver's license. Um, think ahead, why not a passport uh, on your mobile device? Why not uh, vote on a mobile device. There are a number of different areas that we are going to be finding ourselves using mobile devices for in the future. And all of that valuable information and ensuring the, the, the health profile, the security of the device is going to be an absolute imperative. And I think, you know, obviously the technology is going to continue to to move along at mock speed and as the trust of, of uh, securing that device uh, some of these capabilities that you're describing I think will become more and more prevalent. Uh, Dave, how about at Ruckus Networks? What do you see as far as uh, what the future is looking like over the next couple of years? Right. So looking at the uh, the post base station, um, you know, we we see a future where there is pervasive uh, wireless connectivity, and that's um, secure, high performance. Um, you know, we'll be providing the Wi-Fi solutions to enable that with the security overlay for that. Um, then we're now getting into the LTE business with the CBRS opportunity. We think that, um, you know, as Randy pointed out, it, the network of the future is going to be very dense. It's going to go to small cells both for, uh, well, Wi-Fi is inherently a small cell technology and always has been, but um, cellular is moving in that direction as well just to get the, the capacities and the latencies that are going to be needed going forward. So, um, you know, that's what we see from a network kind of deployment and topology um, on the base. And then the other aspect we see in the future is, again, you know, um, federal and commercial users sharing some bands more, uh, especially in this, this kind of mid-band uh, range, sub-10 gigahertz, where, you know, federal incumbents, DOD incumbents continue to operate un uninterrupted, but commercial users sort of work around them. Fantastic. Um, uh, uh, very important to, again, you know, manage that spectrum and be able to wring that capability out. And I uh, love the idea of this sort of sharing between uh, both the, uh, the agency and the, uh, the private sector kind of partnership on some of that kind of stuff. It's a little bit what you saw in the FirstNet concept, right? right. Uh, Dave, how about at the Navy? I know the Navy goes through, uh, all the services go through an extensive, you know, analysis of out 20 years and that kind of thing. But, you know, bring us back a little bit. You know, if I'm a, a sailor and I'm going to be enlisted or an officer, you know, what am I going to expect to see on a ship or what have you? over the course of the next two or three years, which doesn't sound like that far away. And uh, certainly from a technology standpoint, again, rapid uh, adoption. So 
What does that look like to you guys? I think, again, for for us, it's really kind of, again, focusing on the sailor, their needs, their requirements, right, and bringing them the same mobile capabilities that they have in their day-to-day -day lives, right, being able to access their information, being able to take training, and, and being able to do things right from that personal device um, that, they're, that they can expect um, from the moment that they enter the Navy to the moment they are oper operationalized to the, to the time that they retire, right? Through their entire life cycle, we wanna be able to provide them the capabilities through their mobile device that they would expect, again, in, in their personal lives, right? Being able to access um, and let's say they're they're in an operational environment and they want to submit leave, right? Being able to do that right from their mobile device, it's those type of capabilities that ultimately reduce the distraction from the administrative burdens and allow them to do their job easily and more effectively. And I think ultimately the sailor can expect to, to gain those uh, those capabilities through their mobile devices and applications in the next few years. How about on the classified side? Uh, is there going to be a day where I know there's some capability out there we used to use at Department of Homeland Security it was a little clunky at the time uh, do you see a day where that's going to smooth out and be able to maybe uh, the collateral environment be able to to have a mobile type of capability in that uh, use case yeah definitely I think there's a lot of, of great use cases within the classified and tactical environments that we're uh, we're actually executing right now Oh, really? um, and ultimately, when uh, you know, as industry has talked about, right, there's a lot of device hardening and, and uh, network hardening and, and security advancements that we've made that allow us to take advantage of, of doing things more at the classified levels in the tactical environments. And I think ultimately, if you if you look at it from a you know sort of the tip of the spear, right, that's where ultimately the the the, the DoD really needs to support our warfighters is providing that tactical and those classified capabilities to, to the sailor. So I think there's going to be a strong focus moving forward you know, on those environments as well. Yeah, you talked about, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the time of, you know, being able to get data to the users, uh, to the, uh, the warfighter, so to speak, and classified information would certainly be a part of that. Frank, how about uh, at uh, the Air Force? What does that look like as far as over the next couple of years? Over the next couple of years, we're going to probably extend the mesh network out from the from the aerial side to the land side. That's the intent in the long run anyways, is to be able to do the data across the board and get it quickly between the satellites as well as the ground stations and everything else. You're going to have to have a very fast structure in that place to actually support that. And that's going to be a secure structure as well and it could go to the secret level. But I think you're going to see devices coming out that we haven't taught, thought about yet and how we're going to use those devices. I mean, we talk to our phones right now. Well, why can't you just talk to the phone for every application you have? and get information back to the f right away from the real, real legacy systems. Which we have a pilot for augmented reality right now. So in the field, they're going to be, you're going to see those extended more and more out there as to what do you think you can actually do. And we talked about using Fitbits for, you know, recording your activity to determine if you should take a physical or not. So it's a question of how we're going to use the devices that we currently have into a new frame of reference as to where we want to go with them. I mean, we have the devices. And we have a lot of airmen who are intelligent enough to think of all sorts of cool ways of using them. It's a question of how we're going to go forward with them right now. And I think you're going to see an explosion of that as soon as we get the connectivity there. Everybody's going to say, hey, I could use my device for this, and why can't I do it now? Right, and as that 5G capability gets out there, I can't imagine that there won't be just hundreds of use cases. And I, I know that the uh, even using biometrics to access it, you know, whether it's a facial or a thumbprint kind of thing, is going to be another uh, sort of ease, seamless use of uh, this capability. Well, we could certainly talk all day about this subject. Um, uh, I'd like to thank today's guests for taking the time from their busy schedules to join us for this program.
I'd like to thank our sponsors for Without We Don't Have a Show. And I'd like to thank the good people here at Federal News Radio that make our program so successful and enjoyable. And most of all, I'd like to thank the listening audience out there that tune in every month. You've been listening to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Thank you for listening to the 2018 Federal Executive Forum Series on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, proudly celebrating 13 years. This show was produced by the Treza Media Group. If you missed any portion of this show, you can listen to it in its entirety and on demand at federalnewsradio.com.